0: You're home is where you feel safe.
1: For me, home is uh, family, number one. Uh, my parents, let me be specific.
0: Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for.
2: Happy Easter, and welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. Welcome to Episode 8, our Easter Sunday episode.
3: Hometown is a podcast for Episcopal Migration Ministries, the refugee resettlement and welcome ministry of the Episcopal Church. Learn more about our work on our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM
2: Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together to read all of Luke and Acts throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at goodbookclub.org. Find them on Facebook, The Good Book Club. Listeners, as you might have guessed, we
3: pre-record all of our episodes. We're not, you know, live recording every Sunday morning. And we're pre-recording this Easter Sunday episode so that we can be celebrating and worshiping and not in the podcast studio, which is actually my, my closet. <laughs> Kendall, what are you doing this Easter Sunday?
2: Uh, well, this Easter, my boys, who are four and five, um, are pretty excited about the Easter egg hunt at church. So we'll participate in that and attend church and then come home and do another Easter egg hunt because, you know, you can never hide too many Easter eggs in your backyard and hunt for them. So, <laughs> so fun. Yes. So church and then plenty of chocolate. What about you? That's awesome. Well, well first, do the boys believe in the Easter bunny? Is that a thing? Um, I think it's a thing. My children, no. Uh, but I think that's because I haven't taken my children to meet a big Easter bunny at any point. (laughs) Um, So my children's understanding of Easter is really grounded in church. And then the fact that they're going to get this basket (laughs) of chocolate, some cool, right. Some chocolate and some cool race cars. Um, So we don't, we don't really do the bunny thing, um, but, but it's definitely still a thing I hear. Yeah.
3: That's awesome. Well, and (laughs) listeners, if you know, why, why is the Easter bunny part of like Easter lore? Let us know. I know I've read about it at some point, but I, I've forgotten about it. So for, for my Easter, I'm similarly going to church with my family, and then um, I've got some wonderful neighbors who live just, just next door to us with two little kids who are one and a half and three and a half, and I love these kids so much. So I don't have nieces and nephews yet, so I've kind of adopted these kids as my nieces and nephews, and we're gonna um, we're going to hide Easter eggs in our yard so that they can come over and find them. So I'm, I'm so excited. It'll kind of be my first Easter with, like, a reason to hide Easter eggs. <laughs> so
2: It's actually a lot of fun, I have to say. Yeah, I can't so. wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Awesome. Well, let's get to the show. Uh, listeners, now that we began Easter season, we've finished reading the Gospel of Luke, and today we begin with the Acts of the Apostles. And this week's readings take us from Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 4, verse 22.
3: We're so excited to introduce you to today's Scripture Reflection author. The Reverend Canon Jason Lewis is a great friend and supporter of EMM, and he serves as the Canon for Congregational Vitality in the Diocese of Kentucky, the western part of the state. I have to make that distinction, listeners, because I'm from the Diocese of Lexington, which we say is on the right side (laughs) of Kentucky. Um, So as a side note, Canon Jason is also an avid podcast listener, and he and I have traded podcast recommendations in the past.
2: (laughs) Canon Jason has been an ordained Episcopal priest for 10 years and has been active in congregational ministry for the past 19 years. Prior to his coming to the Diocese of Kentucky in September of 2013, he had the privilege of serving as lay vicar, deacon in charge, the vicar, and eventual rector of a growing and thriving church plant in South Kansas City, St. Mary Magdalene in the village of Lock Lloyd. In the Diocese of Kentucky, Canon Jason
3: serves as the chair of the Department of Mission and Evangelism and collaborates with congregational leadership to empower and sustain ongoing and thriving ministry that connects with urban neighborhoods, rural towns, and cities throughout the western half of Kentucky. He has a passion for walking alongside congregations through strategic planning and intentional ministry
2: development. We're so grateful to Canon Jason for being a part of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's Reflection.
1: The Acts of the Apostles, chapters 1 through 4, The Promise, For You and For All Who Are Far Off. Jesus' story doesn't end with Jesus. It continues onward in the lives of those who believe in him. The Acts of the Apostles tell of Jesus' ministry as it moves forward through the shared life of the earliest Christ believers. The first four chapters of Acts are packed full of action, Jesus admonishes his students to wait for the Father's promise. He tells them that this promise, once received, will empower their ministry to be witnesses from Jerusalem, all over Judea, Samaria, and indeed to the ends of the world. On the day of Pentecost, the promised Spirit descends. The gathered community is filled with power and is enabled to share the good news of God with all nations and peoples as each hears the message in their own language. The division of languages at the Tower of Babel and the confusion that followed, it has been lifted and reversed. God's spirit empowers the message to extend beyond all borders and boundaries. This is the spirit of a God who seeks to embrace all, regardless of country of origin, language, nationality, or ethnicity, the Spirit gathers all into the new unfolding story of God's redemptive purposes for the whole of creation. As the Spirit comes down, Peter boldly stands and preaches the first Christian sermon. He proclaims that death did not have the power to hold Jesus. God has raised him up. Jesus' life lives on, in those who are filled with this once promised and now delivered Spirit. This promise, Peter declares, is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away. The message of God extends outward to those who are near and those who are far off. Indeed, this is for all people. These beginning chapters of Acts reveal a God who is ever widening the circle of who is embraced and brought in to the beloved community. The Spirit is being poured out and is calling Jesus' followers to move outward to share God's life with all people and all nations. As Christians, our message and work is not about us. It is about God's embrace and love for all people. Jesus' story doesn't end with Jesus. It continues onward as we welcome the stranger. Jesus' ministry of welcome extends through us as we intentionally take an active role in welcoming immigrants and refugees into our midst. Radical welcome. That is what the Spirit is up to in the Acts of the Apostles. And this is to be the character of the welcome that we are called to offer with our very lives. Let us pray. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off, to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold, pour out your Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
2: So Allison, I really liked how Jason brought up the concept of radical welcome and especially with regard to immigrants and refugees. And um, I also was really moved by uh, the sentence, um, as Christians, our message and work is not about us. It's about God's embrace and love for all people. And I think that's something we really carry with us during this time and also in this work um, of refugee resettlement. Yeah. What was your response?
3: Yeah, Kendall, I'm kind of thinking now about your reflection on on what Jason said and how this work is really not ours. It's the work of God and we're partners in that work. So I think it's so easy to grasp too tightly to, you know, our own ideas or our own passions or what we're trying to build and what we're trying to do and to forget that we're we're instruments of God's love in the world. Um, And the mission that we're carrying out is God's mission. Of widening the embrace, as as Jason says, and bringing all into beloved community, and it's not just our work. It's not something that we should, you know, white knuckled cling to. Um, we are instruments, and we are simply acting out the love um, that we've been shown. And so, I really appreciate that. That's what you said because I think it's reminding me about uh, that I need to let go a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Of things that I care about but I I sometimes cling too tightly to you
2: know I think it is God's love which bounds us to one another and so therefore we're obligated to help one another when people are in need or they're Mm -hmm. running from war and persecution and violence and you know fear of death how would we not reach out and help how would we not recognize the face of God in those people so that's really what it makes me think of.
1: Mm.
3: Yeah, the other thing that I occurs to me listening to Jason is that we we as humans, I feel, we sometimes have this tendency to kind of um, almost close in on ourselves. Like we can become, especially when we're fearful, we can become closed off to listening to others we can become closed off to trying to help others who are in need um we kind of get narrow-minded and we kind of have this group mentality that becomes us versus them and what jason talks about here and really what the opening chapters of acts are are illustrating is that god is calling us to to broaden and widen our understanding of who our neighbors are who our community is um, and like you said, Kendall, you know, kind of expanding our notion of who is deserving of of our love, our attention, and of our um, our sense of companionship, and the answer is, is everyone.
2: Listeners, last week we provided background on Uganda, its difficult history, its current posture towards refugees. If you haven't listened, we encourage you to go back in your podcast feed and check it out. That background was all in preparation for the main event of today's episode, our interview with
3: Jacqueline Kifuko, who is originally from Uganda and now lives in Columbus, Ohio.
2: We decided to feature this interview on our Easter Sunday episode because of how Jackie tells her own story, what her story represents.
3: It was a really powerful conversation. And Kendall, I don't know about you, but as I've thought about our conversation with her, I really think that her life story is is full of these themes of pain and despair, but then her hope and and her triumph. Well, it really seemed like an Easter story. It it does to me. And I think, you know, we often talk about ourselves as resurrection people. And I really think hers is a
2: resurrection story in its own way. So without further ado, we're honored to introduce you to Jackie. Today we are joined by Jackie Kafuko, who is the refugee organizer for Chris in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, I'm excited to be part of the discussion. We're so, so glad, you're glad you're here. Jackie, can you talk to us about
0: your home in Uganda? Uganda, I had a pretty good home. Uh, Our family was well-needed. I have four uh, brothers. I'm the first born in the family with a mom and dad. Kind of like had a lot of love in the home. Plenty of food. You know, Africa is a a basket for food. So we had plenty of food. And we kind of spent most of our times together discussing issues that would kind of like um, make us, you know, be more productive in our communities and give back to our communities. so our home was so loving so loving and community too and you
2: fled Uganda to Kenya in 2014 yes and what was the experience of going to Kenya
0: wow that was the most most horrible thing I will ever talk about when I became a refugee um because this was a strange land I didn't know much about it and um They kind of have two official languages, that is Swahili, which the biggest population uses. So I was kind of stuck in most cases with whatever I wanted to do because I could not communicate in Swahili and uh, many deliberately would refuse to speak in English, even if they understood what you're talking about. So kind of making uh, my life hard and the lives of many refugees hard, our um, uh, in most cases, our interaction was between UNHCR, but the communities where we lived, it was kind of hard, hard, more especially now with me, I was, uh, I was on my own. I didn't know anyone. So I had to make sure I find a community that was either once lived in Uganda and knew the language I speak or people who were from my country who were then very few. So it was hard for me, for me as a woman and, uh, being on my own, getting housing. So in the beginning, when I succeeded connecting with some of the Ugandans who were refugees there, we lived in a pretty small house. We are like ten people, and it was kind of risky for mostly women. We were only two, and the rest were men. We were over ten in that small house. Mm-hmm. Just we wanted like to cut on our cost it was hard for us to get work to do, to pay the bills. So the only way we could do it is to get together and pull resources together and be able to fill the bills. But still, it was a challenge for us, reason being there was a big question mark, why are you leaving many in one apartment? So uh, many times the police will come, knock on the houses. We never felt safe, even when we had documents from the units here trying to Identify our uh, identifiers as refugees. They were never comfortable to have many people sleeping in the same house. And uh, the time came, we had to separate, which was very hard. You know, we had to find a way of either staying too, meaning you have to work hard. And as a refugee, you're not in. It's hard for you to get a good job. Most of the times, you go for these uh, hard jobs to do, especially for women. Personally, I, I was a social worker in my country, but I had to get reduced to becoming a housemaid just to raise a little fee for myself. So that's how life was hard as a refugee, trying to cope up in a new system, in a new environment where you don't know anybody. Thank you so much, Jackie,
3: for, for being with us and, and for that, that response. Mm-hmm. Can you... Describe a little bit for our listeners the situations in which refugees live in countries to which they flee. You were in Kenya. We know that many refugees live in refugee camp situations. Others might live in urban areas. Can you talk about where you lived and how the Kenyan government and officials responded
0: to um, to you and to others who were refugees in Kenya? Depend the means of transport were hard uh, for you to understand, you know, Here, things are pretty different. You know that if a bus is coming from this point, it will help to the other point. You know, it's kind of uh, detailed. But the other side, you have to ask the person operating the bus. And how would you ask somebody who potentially says, can we speak English? So um, many times refugees, more especially for women, they get raped. They get assaulted because they could not. Speak, they can't speak the language, and there's no way you 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 will report to the of, uh, police of, officials your case when you cannot, you know, speak the language which they are comfortable with. And then me, uh, with me, my experience, uh, there are moments when you try like to reach out to the police officials, trying to seek for help, and then they will be the ones, you know, to torture you. Because I remember sometime. In my face, I saw one of my colleagues. He, uh, this is hard, but he was a male who got raped. And it was hard for him to explain this scene because UNHCR insisted the only way they would help him to process his uh, case, he had to go to the police. And here was a scenario. He was raped as a man and he mm. could not say it. And then they, they kept on insisting to mention how the act was this was terrible and then his papers you know his identification papers which are called uh a mandate because he was on the refugee status he was not an asylee by then were torn and the police officer was like there's no way you can prove it that i did that so you have to pay because every uh every um uh, action you would want Uh, or every case you would want to process through the officials, majority of the refugees are forced to pay for it. That's why it will be uh, kind of strange when somebody gets here and, you know, we all think you have to pay for every service you want because that's how it was the other side. Many times, refugees don't have money, but, you know, if you want something to be done for, you have to look for the money, which is very hard. Women end up getting into prosecution not because it's what they want, because they kind of want to fit in this system. This is nowhere where you belong. The system has denied you. The system has stripped you of your rights, you know, but you kind of want to survive as a refugee. So mm-hmm. many of them live with that trauma. So kind of when we are resettled, some, I always tell my friends, we do carry a lot of stuff with us, but the one thing you don't see is within us. We carry the, uh, a bug within us, which says, I am troubled or what I need is somebody to love me, somebody to hug me, somebody to tell me at last somebody cares about you, you know, because as an asylum or a refugee, I mm. never accepted in the country where I sought asylum because those countries themselves have their own problems, you know, yeah. and uh, many times you're intimidated or you're threatened that if you don't pay for the service, they can drag you back to your country. And nobody will ever take note of that. And it happened to several. I remember one official this time. Uh, one official from Sudan. Uh, he fled his country, came to uh, to Kenya. But this time, it was the Kenyan government that took him back to Sudan. It was kind of an international issue then, but you can just imagine that was a big official from Sudan. But now what about somebody who's not big, you know, in profile in his profile, but he's running away because he lost all what he needed, or he lost his family. The family uh, the, the country where he came from was trauma. I mean, was going through violence. He kind of the the only expensive or the only thing he's holding on to is the hope and the life he has. But you lose everything. You lose everything. And where you run to, still life continues to be like that. You're traumatized throughout. It's kind of a challenge. And be, me being a single mom then, it was very hard for me, you know, coping up. You're, you're walking in these streets and these guys are taking note of you. You don't have a husband around you and they don't know this how you go this child, you know? So we are beaten up. We had denied chances to are our rights like refugees. Even when you have an appointment, you have to pay for it. This is something by the time I left Nairobi, the UNCR had taken note of it because some of us, we had to speak out to let them know before we are granted a chance to enter inside UNHCR. The, the security outside demands money from us, bribing. But I have to buy milk for my child I have to pay rent, which man I work hard for. And then I come, you know, bribe somebody and already have an appointment to be, you know, to come and check on the progress of my case. But I come worried. I don't know whether I'll go inside. And if I don't go inside, UNSA will automatically indicate I I did not make it for the appointment. But that's not true. Sometimes they're denied outside and they make sure that they torture you, uh, They make sure that you're not in, uh, where the cameras are able to see you. That's how, you know, refugees, that's the kind of life they lead.
2: You've been through so much to get here. And I'm curious when the process for resettlement started for you and then how long
0: that process took before you actually made it to the United States. I may say I was one of the lucky ones because by the time I I fled to Nairobi, I knew how to read and write from my country so i advocated for myself that's the letter i can say i advocated for my case every step it reached onto. i wouldn't care who was hand you'd never know who's handling your case but the best i could do i'll get on the internet google or the different contact information i wouldn't care whether this person is in nairobi or is in the us or is as long as it's unhcr i'll write to them so uh luckily uh many times i'll get you know i'll be contacted to come and check uh, on the progress of my case, but just imagine somebody who cannot not right. Many of their cases take like five years, you know? Five years even if you have insecurities, you know, going on in your life. And I would like to say as an advocate for myself, I went ahead and advocated for some other individuals because the primary people who receive your documents sometimes will not care. They will... I remember one making a statement to a man who came crying outside UNSR, he's like, from the time I fled my country, this guy was from Somalia, and uh, he had just been diagnosed with cancer. I don't know what kind of cancer he had, but he had cancer, and he was standing outside the premises, and it's like, I would want to talk to somebody, and nobody would, you know, nobody would accept him in because they didn't have an appointment, so... Having been there for several hours, he got disgusted with the whole thing, frustrated. He, he, I remember him saying, I've never seen my, my family for the past eight years. I don't know whether I'll ever see them again. I, I don't know the meaning of life anymore or what I know is pain. So this guy just runs, runs into the road uh, mm-hmm. on a freeway or what he wanted was to be crushed dead. Mm-hmm. That was my first time I saw somebody crushed dead and uh, i was so destroyed and actually that gave me the, the 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 drive to standing up for other refugees at that point because many uh their cases drag on because of the many backlog there's a lot of backlog in the system and um, by the time they are resettled they're already tired they already feel maybe nobody cares but i'm so glad that I made it to the US generally this year and for a couple of uh no for a number of times my my flight was canceled it doesn't mean that automatically when you start resettlement that's it because I started my resettlement you, you do resettlement with the UNESC then you do resettlement with the specific uh high commission where you, your file has been uh, forwarded mine was forwarded to uh US and then after several months I was called for the uh uh, they call them pre-screening, then I went to, through biometrics, I went through medicals, um, but it's kind of uh, scary when your medicals get expired, because it takes between three to four months when they expire, you have to redo it, and this the, the medicals, the distance between where I was staying and where the facilities, or should I say the hospital where I was supposed to go was very far, it would require somebody to travel like four hours on the road you know, to get there and you have to be there by eight. Uh, it put me at a risk. I had to move from uh, from my place, which was in a ghetto at uh, 2 a.m. And that place was full of you know, tags, full of everything, because that's where we could afford to stay. And that's where many refugees stay. So uh, a day to my flight, after going through cancer, uh, we do uh, orientation, uh, a day to my flight, I'd packed all my bags. Uh, I thought there's no more paying rent. The little job I was doing, I had to quit it. And here I was, ready for the flight. I received a phone call. Jackie, your flight has been canceled till further notice.
1: Mm.
0: Oh my gosh. That's devastating. Very devastating. I couldn't walk back home. And remember, my, my baby was then seven months. And I was the caregiver. Mm. So... I, could, I, ne- I lost all the energy to give him food. Mm. I was in this house because I was worried the landlord was, was coming to, you know, to evict me anytime. I remember several times I wrote to you and and I'm like, uh, I, I want you guys to get me where to stay. I know it's very hard. I've been in the urban for a while of trying to press on hard, but I think it's time for me to, to go to the camp. But I knew much about camp, how hard life is uh harder than how it was in the in the urban. So when there was no response, I just carried one bag. I remember uh the landlord uh evicted me, I just carried just a few clothes for my baby with no food. I moved to UNHCR, which was three hours away from where I was staying. I went and sat her outside UNSCR premises. I didn't have an appointment. Definitely I knew I would be denied in. So the best I could I could do was to sleep outside with my baby in the cold. So I spent there two nights until when somebody uh watched the 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 cameras, the surveillance cameras, and she's like, There's somebody I've seen there for two nights. What's going on? I need to check on that baby because it's going, it's, it's going to force it uh, in Nairobi uh, towards the end of the year. It's pretty cold, very cold. In fact, they call it winter season, uh, but it's not as extreme as here. So uh, later on, I was taken in and this lady is like, we're going to find you a place where to stay, but we don't know whether you'll be able to recover the other items you had. And those were the items I was supposed to travel with. So I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what to do next. But if you can't help me, unless give up my child for adoption, I can't take care of him. You know, it it was the most painful decision I'd come up with. I, I was going to be separated from him, not because I didn't like him, but because the situation was very hard for me. I couldn't afford buying him anything. Mm-hmm. So I was taken to this facility of refugees who are sick, who are sick of what you don't know. These uh, refugees got from different camps who, who were brought in the urban, to uh, To access the medical facil, I mean, medical help, which was better than that in the camp. Now it was more risky for my little baby. I was more worried than even before. I was um, I was promised two weeks to get your flight, and two weeks turned into a month, two months, three months. I'm like, oh my god, this is too much. I'm putting on one cloth. You can imagine. I had to wash it in the night, then hang it. If I'm lucky and it's hot, it will dry up. If I'm not lucky, I'll put it on when it's wet. Through writing to uh, different people, I wrote, uh, I remember connecting with one Canadian woman. I'm like, I was looking for a a group to sponsor me because this was a dead end now. I knew I was never going to get units, I mean to the US. And Mm -hmm. that was the time when uh, so many, uh, that was the time the campaigns are getting hot. The wave of the politics here was getting hot, and I was make I was following it up keenly to see maybe it's the reason as to why I was impacted. So I remember my last email was to the IOM, that is Immigration. Uh, yeah, I wrote to them and told them uh, I thanked them for having granted me a chance, you know, to go to the US, which was cancelled. But I, in my email, I was like, I think the reason as to why my flight was cancelled was because of what is going on to the US. In my conclusion, I was like, help me, you know, get to know what exactly happened. If it was about my uh, background check, I think I'm clean. But if it's known that, actually my conclusion was, I think it's time for me to end my life. I don't, there's nothing I'm living for anymore. I didn't want to see my child see me every day, you know, getting destroyed. I didn't want to see him suffering because of me. You know, and uh, shortly after one week, I was given another flight, and uh, yeah, I was given another flight, and I was told, Jackie, you're ready to move out of the use. But by then, I had given, you know, I didn't have that excitement like the one I had in the beginning. So, I was um, taken back for the medical checkup because you're not allowed on the on the plane when uh, your medical uh, is not cleared. So I went back for that. But I remember the doctor taking several hours than before. Uh, I mean, the first time when I went in, he took several hours. I was so concerned. I asked him, doctor, what could be going on with me? Why is it? He kept on asking me, I'm fine. I said, I'm fine. So after doing the medical, they give you an envelope. that You're not supposed to open that envelope. Until when you reach in the U.S. and go for your first medical screening. So I carried that that envelope. But when I got to the U.S., I was kind of concerned. Why did this doctor take long to, you know? Honestly, I opened the envelope. No. <laughs> I was No, I was scared. I didn't know what I was going to, you know, it was like reporting myself. I'm carrying this, you know, baggage. I didn't know what was inside. So when I opened it, his report was if you cancel her flight again, she's going to die. Oh my God. I remember dropping down and crying in the house where I was. Some like I was at the verge of death because of depression. Mm. I didn't know what was going to happen next to my little boy, you know? Yeah. So that's what, that's what's going on to several refugees right now because of the many, uh, Police is getting on board. So many flights are canceled. I was not the only one who's canceled, uh, whose flight was canceled then. I remember a family that, that came from Kakuma Camp. It, uh, it was about, uh, there were about eight of them. And then their flight was canceled with mine. And they were told, you're going back to the camp. Mm. I just imagined you leave the camp and you think this is my last time to be here. And you're taken back. You don't know when you come out of it. I never got a chance to meet them again, but it's kind of devastating. Refugees are going through a lot, which is not known to many, you know, a lot.
3: Oh, Jackie, I'm so whew, I'm so grateful to you for being so candid.
0: Yeah, sounds scary, but there's a lot going on. There's a lot because recently, I remember one of the ladies I got connected to in the uh, in the safe house where I stayed. She was a mother. By then she was still an asylum. I don't know if she, she was granted the refugee status. She had two babies, twins, and they were result out of rape. And she was kind of destroyed. One of the child uh, uh, was suffering from pneumonia. Unfortunately, she died recently when I was mm. here. That was the most painful day because she stood by me, despite the fact the pain she was going through, we couldn't speak the same language. We used signs. She was from Ethiopia. I was from Uganda. So nothing in common but all what we knew we are single mothers both of us and we are you know we are kind of trying to fend for our babies uh uh when uh time came that the authorities told her she was supposed to leave the safe house and she had to go you know outside and she she was so destroyed she didn't know what to do i remember her grabbing her the sick baby and she's like I'm gonna leave this other one because for her, she's okay. They can take care of her. But my little baby here who's sick cannot do anything for herself. She was paralyzed. The lower part of her body was paralyzed. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the one she was trying hard to fight for passed on just recently. Ugh, yeah. That's devastating. Very devastating.
3: Well, Jackie, you shared with us, Um, a, I mean, really painful parts of your story um we're so grateful that you did thank you thank you and i i know now that you're in the united states you do some incredible and important work yeah with the new american the the resettled refugee community Mm -hmm. how do you do your work how do you help people who I, i would hope that there might be more hope and more lightness in in life now but i also know that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of very difficult memories and and you spoke about trauma yeah that people have to work through how how do you go about your work working with um the new american community
0: yeah the good side of it i love helping people that is my nature when when i see uh making a change in one's life it makes me happy so i kind of uh, devote my entire day trying to talk to these people to make them understand. I share my, my the part of my story with theirs to make, you know, many go through healthy, uh, they are traumatized, but I kind of like use myself as a case study for them to stand strong. I tell them I, I'm a single mom who went through similar to what you went through. If I'm able to make it, you can make it. You know? But I, and being that for me, I'm able to reach out to different important offices with they are not able to, I go and speak on their behalf. I make sure that those who don't have jobs, I try like to reach out to the different companies or agencies that can do, that can hire them, then they do. And that makes me happy because I know somebody else is happy because, because of what I went through, I don't want anyone else to go through it. I don't want it to happen. And when I, went, when I came to Ohio, the most challenging part of it was the means of transportation to reach your place of work. Mm-hmm. It was very hard. And I remember, this is hard to say, but one of the guys who tried to help me wanted to take advantage of the situation. I'm like, no, this can't happen. And by then I was, you know, um, I was living with her girlfriend I mean, his girlfriend. And um, he kind of like playing tricks between the two of us. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually I go, Thrown out of the house with my baby, but I was never put down. I said no. You would not take advantage of me because I was a refugee. With whatever I went through, he he was also a refugee too. But I actually I'm saying this uh, for many to understand that it's it's good to make follow up of refugees uh, wherever they are after a per- until a period of like one year to make sure that they are now stable and able to you know to move on. You know, three months is quite a little period to say that now you can, you know, you can go on. It's very hard for somebody who's been in a hard situation to come in a complex system to catch up in just three months. Me, myself, it was overwhelming, Mm. very overwhelming. You know, I didn't know about children's hospitals. I didn't know about, you know, you go for the ESL classes. I, I didn't know how to use a GPS. You know, that kind of life. Yeah. So I was kind of running here and there. And there's nobody I can ask, how do I do it? You know, the refugee community where I live, majority don't speak the language I speak and they can't speak English. So good enough, there was an American guy I kind of like got connected to through the internet. And this guy was so touched with my story. He came, he came to me and said. like, Jackie, I'm here to help you. I've been all along yearning to help a refugee, but since you've been bold enough to mention what you're going through, I'm here to help you. I was so lucky. In fact, um, I've taken uh, some months without seeing him, but I say I think God sent me an angel from heaven. Mm. I actually asked him that I am an angel. You know, this guy would drive from wherever he stays. It was a thirty minutes drive from his home to connect where I was staying, he would take me for, uh, hospital appointments. He would help. He helped me, uh, get my child, my child and daycare. He helped me, you know, connect to different places. And when he saw that I'm set to go, that's when he vanished. What? That's when he vanished out of my life.
3: Oh,
0: no. <laughs> I'm so confused when, when yeah. you, will you back up and explain a little bit more? Yeah. I've said this guy came in. He's like, I've had many Americans helping refugees, and their stories, you know, kind of touched me. I didn't know that refugees go through a lot. So he came on my door. I didn't know anything about him. Just because of the situation I was going through between my roommate and her boyfriend, I had to entrust my life with a total stranger.
1: Mm -hmm. I didn't know this
0: guy. I'm like, if anything happens to me, I'll just accept it. Because I cannot live in this drama with my roommate. So this guy is like, okay, what do you want? We sat down and drew a program. And like, all what I want is to be safe, you know, my son to be safe. So he kind of reached out to different people, sourcing for help for me. He got food, he got me clothes, he got me friends, and then... He would take me to all the uh, appointments I had to different locations, and it's like, because you had a bad trauma back then, you need to you know you need to be with people who show you love. There was a lot of paperwork I had to feel that I would I never understood. actually, I would read English, but I would not understand anything because my mind was kind of having a lot of conflict within it, and they would help me interpret everything and then when they realized I'm set to go. That's when they all went away. They're like, we are done with our mission. And that's why I say maybe this was an angel from heaven. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) To help me then. Wow. That's, That's powerful. Yeah. And actually right now I'm on a campaign to reach out to different churches to do the same. I'm like, if I got this particular person, there are so many good people out there, I believe and good people in these churches, if you reach out to a family of refugees and adopt it just for like a few months, you know, make them navigate through the system, make them, you know, love America, make them feel safe. Then life will be easy for every refugee who is resettled. Other than complaining, I don't understand this. Why don't you give it a chance? You understand that family. Refugees are not bad, they're loving people. Actually, I I always tell them, refugees run away from violence, it means they're not violent themselves. Mm-hmm. They would fight back, but they don't do that. They lose everything. All oh, what you need to know, a refugee is the most loving person. Show them love, they will love you back. That is a powerful call to action, wow. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I was actually, and maybe that would be your answer, but I was, I was gonna ask you, Jackie, what you would, what you want people to know about refugees that maybe they don't know.
0: Uh, the first part, I think I've said it, uh, refugees are the most loving people and refugees are vulnerable people who want to be helped. You know, it's no, it, it, it will not help us to keep on complaining on, on the other side of the coin. We should also try to understand them. You know, we always uh, complain from the misinformed point of view. You know, you get this information from this person and because that's how he saw this particular refugee, that's the way we take the story. But if, what if you stepped out and tried to make that connection with that refugee family or that particular refugee and get to know them? Because for me, before I fled my country, I, I had no interest about refugees. I would see all the time on the news in my country, refugees are fleeing to Uganda. You know, about what I would never imagine myself becoming a refugee at one point. I'll never, You know, so I remember there was one, um, one UNHCR official. I remember telling her she was kind of hard up on refugees, but I wrote her one email, which turned out all the events she came out to meet us. I told her, nobody woke up to say, I want to be a refugee. Even you inside there, one day you can wake up when you're a refugee and when I'm not. So how do, do you want me to, you know, help you? when you're a refugee. That's the kind of help I want to do, you know, to extend to me. She goes so touched. I remember there was, uh, there was some help we were seeking for our single mothers. We were being told to go work, which was a good idea, I welcomed it. Yes, we have to go and work and, you know, raise some money for our children. But then the other side was there was, there was some kind of funding which was being extended to the children, which was being denied, which our children were being denied then, you know. I'm like, yes, we go work. We have to put our children to the, in these daycares. And the only daycares we can afford are the worst daycares. They were like pigstyles where we put them. So I don't think we are putting them in daycares. We are just putting them in a place where they will come back with diseases. So the little, the little money I'm making, I'll be just treating my kid, which is not, you know, doesn't make sense to me. Kind of like if you give me some little money, I raise little, not working full time to see that, you know, I make my child safe and healthy. Why don't you come out and look at our plea? We didn't have health insurance and we knew uh, so, to some point if they saw that you're so vulnerable, they will issue that to your children. Our children were not getting food, some racial food we are being denied. But this is some information I read on UNHCR and I'm like, but oh, what I'm reading, we have not accessed it. So when I wrote, I wrote to them. They realized somebody is taking note of what is going on. And uh, they actually came out and that help was extended to the single mothers, which was very good. So people need to understand refugees need as much love as they do need it. The way you feel is how the refugee would feel. The way you feel when you've been denied something is exactly how the refugee will feel, you know, Just put yourself in the shoe of that person. Doors were open initially for refugees to come in the U.S. Right now we are seeing one by one getting shut. So just imagine your own child. I always put them on a test when I'm talking to people. Just imagine your child having nothing completely, but you would love to give your child everything. You know? So that's the same situation refugees go through not because they don't care they love their kids there's no mother who would hurt her child you know even if she's a rape victim she'll always love her child because she shares a dna with the child and the child is just a victim you know yeah but when you shut the door you trigger the other you know you trigger that hatred she had towards maybe the person who raped her and then she will hate her child. She will hate everything. This is not who she is. The situation is pushing her to do that. So the best they can do is to love
3: everyone. Jackie, you are a person of, you're a person of such integrity and such compassion and listening to you speak about refugees, listening to you speak about people who lose hope and what the loss of hope means for their lives. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me wonder, what, what has it been like for you in America when you encounter someone who's misinformed, who is scared, who doesn't understand refugees? How do you change their mind? How do you, you seem so compassionate, you seem to have this innate understanding of human nature. So how do you respond to people who are fearful and are confused?
0: okay i do really appreciate the opinions towards refugees because i know in most cases we always come up with conclusion basing on the little information you know so the best i do is to educate them i'm kind uh, right now i'm doing campaign to educate the the communities about refugees need to understand we're refugee and actually the Uh, What I realized initially, most cases when people are explaining about refugees, they talk about figures, they talk about, you know, just, you know, words. So for me, I'm coming up with a campaign where I bring out photos. I'll show you how the camp looks like. And I'll show you how children are raised in the camp. And then I'll bring a photo of a refugee who has been resettled and how life has changed. So they kind of see refugees are willing to change their lives. They're willing, you know, to cop up. But all oh, what is lacking is the connections. If you deny somebody something, you typically killing this person, which you don't know. And if you talk here about the refugee, you're like another terrorist because you're killing that person. Terrorism is not about getting, a, a, you know, a bomb or explosive, then you go, you know, kill people. As long as you're killing this, you know, killing the message, you know, Killing the everything around this particular group of people. I always say we should not look at refugees as an ethnic group. We should look as at refugees as individuals, people who have life and people who have hope. You know, there's no person who you know who has hope like a refugee, because we all hold on to little hope, but we keep it growing. There are children who have been raised born and raised in the camps. There is no other world they know. And when you talk about camps, people think it's just like a country. No, a camp is where somebody is confined. You don't exceed some points, but you're in this particular country. Actually with me, I always surprise people. I tell them, yes, I came to the US, but my heart is in the camp. The little money I make, I don't only share it with my son, I share it with some refugees I left back. Because if somebody mentions I'm hungry, I understand it. For the three years I was in, in Nairobi as a refugee, I would only have one meal in 24 hours. Even when I was pregnant, you know, doctors kept on telling me you have to eat three meals, you have to do what? But you, these are words you're telling me. How, how do I afford that? I couldn't. And I was surprised my child came out normal. That was a miracle God did for me. So I encourage fellow refugees here. To also think about the refugees we left back because we understand our stories. Nobody will understand it the way we do. Yeah. I don't care whether a refugee is from uh, Myanmar, I don't care whether the refugees from Sudan, a refugees in Nairobi, as long as it's a refugee. But for me, my heart is for the little children who are just victims of circumstances. They don't know anything. I always look at them like my little baby. Actually, I named him Justice. And everyone used to wonder, why do you call your child justice? I'm like, I need God to show me justice now. Every time I call my son, I'm like calling God. I need justice. You know? That's beautiful. <laughs> so I every time we are called upon to donate, I donate to all the agencies that resettle refugees or that care for refugees and camps. And I always share that with my friends. I'm like, you guys... The only thing we can do is to show life. If you at least ten dollars can put a, a meal on, on somebody's table in the camp, which is not the case here. Ten dollars is very little. But at least spare that. We went through the same kind of life. You know? We are like one family now. As long as somebody comes in as a refugee, regardless of the skin colour, regardless of the you know, the the, the, the the country where they came from, we should love our we should love one another. And when we do that, we shall be encouraging other people to also do the same. But we cannot condemn other people, you know, to have that negative talk about refugees when we ourselves are not doing anything for them.
2: You've been through so much to get you and justice here in the United States. And I'm curious what hopes you have for him. Justice?
0: Yes. Actually, yes. I know justice is going to get whatever he wants in life. I'm so happy and feel blessed that my son, despite the struggles we went through as a little baby, we couldn't afford anything. Right now, I wake up to say, if <laughs> surprisingly, even if I don't have money in my in my bag, and he cries for something, I try to buy. It. Some people say I'm spoiling him, but that's not it. I always feel he was deprived, he was a victim of circumstance and I don't want him to ever remember those memories. I never kept any thought of mine when I, when I was a refugee with him because I don't want him to ever know that he was a refugee, you know? Not because I'm kind of disconnecting him to that kind of bad, no. I, w- I want to raise him to know he was born lucky. He was born, yeah. Uh, one thing, by the way, one thing that makes me cry And what I don't want people most of the times to know, my son is stateless. And that's why I stand in for other people. Uganda would never accept him because I had him in Nairobi. Nairobi denied him citizenship, even when he was born there. And right now I'm in the US. I don't know when I will ever mention that to him. And I kind of struggle so much to see if, I don't know, That's one thing that I'm just wondering how many refugees have children who are denied citizenship, you know, when it happened to me, I'm like, probably there are many and they're silent about that. So uh, we need to educate people to understand that these human beings should be cared for these children, you know, when you keep on reminding them of their past, they will hurt themselves. So justice will have the best of life, I promise.
3: I think with a, with a mother like you, I'm sure he knows he is so, so loved.
0: Yeah, that's true. How old is he? He's making two on 8th December. Oh, he's turning
3: two in a week.
0: Yeah. Oh, <laughs>
3: thank you. To close the interview, are there any thoughts you want to linger with our listeners? Anything you hope
0: that they've learned from you today? actually uh we are kind of like reaching out to to uh americans here to kind of like adopt families in the camps just a word of love will be enough to reinstate hope in 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 an individual who has been who has gone through a lot a lot because i just imagine when i talk to people back there they kind of like keep on telling me jackie what should we ever say or what should we ever do for you? The way you you know, you keep, you know, making us feel somebody cares. And kind of I just imagine if there's anybody who would be like, let me take on this family. You can even just donate twenty dollars a month. That's a month, twenty dollars. It can transform one's life, it can transform a single mother, it can transform a single father, it can transform a little child. You just pay a book. You know? So I want our listeners to know that when we extend love, we get love. I believe the world will be, will be a better place for all of us if we all look at love as something very essential in our lives. Very ins- we, we shouldn't judge people the way they are. Even the terrorist can change his mind when he realizes that somebody loves me. You don't know what drove that person into thinking otherwise. Some of those children or some of those people have gone through a lot. But the only way we can do it is to love them, to care for them. Thank
3: you. Thank you so much, Jackie. This has been such a powerful conversation.
0: Thank you.
2: Jackie, thank you so much. You're so inspirational. I'm so moved by today. I have so many things to think about now, but I just, you've been so vulnerable and shared such personal details and I just, I'm so grateful to you because I know it had to be hard and it really means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And thank you so much for inviting me to share this podcast. Part of this story, I feel, for me, I feel honored when such uh, stories come out to light for people to understand, because many times people have this negative uh, thinking about refugees because they don't know, and we can't blame them. Well, I
3: think you're really brave. Jackie, oh, you wow. were a blessing. Thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time.
2: Thank you, too. Listeners, thank you for joining us this Easter Sunday. We look forward to spending the weeks of Easter season with you. Yes, and listeners, we'd so greatly appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast
3: in your podcast app, and especially in Apple Podcasts, which we understand to be kind of the arbiter of what is good in podcast land (laughs) and what is not. So please do rate and review Hometown and tell your friends about it.
2: This Easter, we invite you to celebrate EMM's ministry of bringing hope and new life to refugees by making a donation. No gift is too small, and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. Visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give or text Hometown to 51555. Thank you for your support, listeners. And if
3: you make a gift, we'd we'd love to know why. We'd love to know why you're motivated to support this work. In a point of personal privilege, if I may, um, around St. Patrick's Day, a supporter of EMM posted on Facebook, um, and she tagged me. And she said that she was making a donation to EMM in honor of her Irish immigrant ancestors, whom she said had faced great hardship when they were newcomers to our country. It was really moving to to read what she posted, um, and it just showed to me how much the work we do in EMM connects to the broader American story and to so
2: many of our own individual family stories. Our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Owenda Kondo. Find his music at abrahammwendamusic.com. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. And rate and review us. <laughs> and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider
3: home.